Well, I think one of the first things people have to do is get on the same page, agree that we're going to put aside 10% or 15% and that we want to invest so that we're not constantly fighting and rehashing out the same conversation. So I think it's important to get on the same page. I think at a minimum, people need to be putting aside 10, 15%. I think people need to be looking at, do we have three months or six months worth of money to cover just the necessities? If you don't have six, fine, do three. If you don't have three, do one. The reason I talk about baby steps is because a lot of times we want to get from A to Z. And the reality is you just can't get from A to Z. It's too big of a leap. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Welcome back to Ice Cream with Investors. I'm your host, Matt Four, and today we have on Bob Wheeler. Bob is a man of true intrigue and infectious energy and is on a crusade for personal growth and has cross-pollinated his comedy with his accounting practice to create a new approach to personal finance. His passion to help others gain insight about their emotions trigger financial decisions. Combining finances with behavior, Bob explores his personal concept of creating a healthy relationship with money in his book, The Money Nerve. While strengthening his accounting practice, Bob has simultaneously pursued love of satire and ventured into the realm of stand-up comedy, where he's also the CFO of the world-famous comedy store in Los Angeles. I'm super excited for this conversation. I'll just say, Bob, welcome to the show. Matt, great to be here. Absolutely. Well, we like to start the listeners with the most difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Coffee. Coffee ice cream. Okay. Any flavors, any toppings or anything on it? More recently, I'm willing to add a few more things, a little chocolate to the mocha. But since I was like four years old, coffee, ice cream, man, that just does it for me. I love it. I love it. If we're ever out in LA, is there a good coffee, ice cream shop that we need to be on the lookout for? Well, Cold Stones has a pretty good coffee, ice cream. There's some really cool gelato places that have perfected the Italian coffee. I'm easy. If it's got coffee in the ice cream, I'm there. I love it. I love it. I think you're the first one to say that, so I can get down with it. Well, Bob, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? So the scoop. So I have a CPA practice, got about a thousand clients, and that's sort of what got me into being the CFO at the comedy store, got me into the whole money and emotions kind of stuff. I, CFO of the world famous comedy store, 25 years, crazy that I've been connected with them. And I wrote a book, The Money Nerve. And really my whole thing, and we talked about this briefly before we started recording, is my whole thing is I want to talk about money. And I want to talk about money to help neutralize, normalize the conversation. Most people, when they talk with their spouse about money, they think I'm saying, go have a fight, go have some conflict, because money is just such a trigger. And so to be able to say, hey, let's just talk about money. What's your perspective? What are your beliefs? And what I find is there's so much shame around the lack of financial literacy, people thinking they're the only ones that don't know, and people out there feel like they're the only one. So even though I'm highly successful and I've got all these great things and my resume looks good on paper, if they only knew the truth that I'm just guessing, and most of us are just trying to figure it out. So really wanting to have conversations around money, just help people start to realize we're all trying to figure it out. Yep. Yep. Why do you think there's a taboo around money? Well, money from the beginning of time, it's how we judge people. You're in my tribe. You're not in my tribe. You're not rich enough. You're too rich. If you've got a lot, how can I take it from you? 
it ties to our job status. Oh, you're a superstar because you make this kind of money and you drive that kind of car and you drive in this kind of neighborhood. Whether it's trading bags of salt or camels or whatever it is, we have been trading in monetary exchange since the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I love this concept of everybody has an emotional side to money. We were chatting before that. I believe when you're thinking about money, there's numbers and what the math tells you should do. And then there's emotion and what your emotions tell you should do. And the real answer for what you should do in a given situation is a mixture of both of those. If you go math all the time, then sometimes you can't sleep at night. But if you go emotion all the time, then you miss out on riskier opportunities that could help you accelerate your wealth journey. So there's a mixture of both. I'm assuming that you sit down with folks and help them kind of work through that process. Where do they even begin? Like if I don't know anything about money and I'm trying to figure out my emotions, where do I even begin? So where I begin with people is actually the first question I ask people, are you willing to feel uncomfortable and are you willing to do some work? Because if the answer is no to both of those, no point in going any further. But what I've discovered is I need to know your story. Like, what did you learn when you were four, five, and six? Did you have some traumatic experience around money? Or did you have some amazing experience around money? Did you grow up in a conservative culture? Did you grow up in a religious family that was money means generosity or money means being selfish, right? There's so many different ways that we get layered early on. And so you're not as smart as your brother. Your sister knows how to save a buck. What's wrong with you? I don't know. So it starts early. So I want to know history and start to figure out what are the beliefs you picked up along the way? What did mom and dad or grandma and grandpa say? Or more specifically, what did they not say? How much do you make, grandma? How dare you? Oh, don't ask that question. So I want to get all the baggage so that we can then start to undo the learning that we picked up early on and see if there's something we can replace it with that serves us better. So let's go ad hoc here. And we might cut this, but so my money experience is my mom was super conservative with money. I mean, mm-hmm. annuities, pension. She worked as a school teacher, went on to get her PhD and became an administrator of school systems. And then my dad was an entrepreneur, never really had a W-2 his entire time. And so it was also, it was so weird to see dichotomy in my family of super saver, make it safe investments, buy CDs, government bonds, and dad going entrepreneur. And when times were good, we went to the World Series, we went on vacation. And when times were bad, there was a little bit of stress in the family household. I have no idea where this passion of learning about money and the different ways that you can make money, save money, invest money, and all that comes from. Where would you take me if I sat down with you and gave you that background? Well, first thing I would imagine is when you see your dad being an entrepreneur and not having the money all the time, there might have been a little bit of disappointment or anger or frustration on your mom's part that he wasn't doing it the right way. And he may have been saying to the kids, look how much fun we have when it's good, it's good, Mm -hmm. right? And so as a kid, you might be going, yeah, that looks more fun, except when the negative stuff comes in, that feels pretty horrible. Gee, I wonder if there's a different way to do it. So I wonder if maybe looking at two very opposite ways of approaching money caused you to say, is there a way to find something in the middle that between the math and the money? Because I work with a lot of teachers and people in that industry whose partners are entrepreneurs and the teachers tend to be more rigid. I had a client come in and he was like, this is my wife. She's a teacher. And she's like, can you tell him he's doing everything wrong? He's just doing everything wrong. Mm. You have to have a budget. You can't be an entrepreneur and just spend. And I'm like, oh no. And you can just see him just want to curl up and die because he's like, I love her really. But we have this thing around money. 
And so that might be where it started, where there was such a, your mom sitting down really strict. It's very clear, clean cut, black and white. And your dad's like, nah, there's lots of gray. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because I have this conversation with my parents a lot now that I've kind of really delved into the world of finance. And mom says that all the time, like, Matt, I just wasn't as risky as you were are and things like that. But I do get this drive for my dad to go create and make more money and find ways to kind of make a deal happen and all that sort of stuff. But in return, I take that money and I shove it into real estate, which I think is one of the safest assets you can have when done correctly to build up cash flow to protect me from when times are bad, knowing that I will always still have money coming in from the assets that I own. So it's interesting that you say that because I do have the best of both worlds, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe a little bit of PTSD from the worst parts. (laughs) (laughs) I just shoved that deep down inside. (laughs) Oh yeah, bury it, bury it for sure. So one of the conversations I'm always trying to extract too when I talk to folks like yourself is, how do you encourage people to go have conversations with their partner about money too? Because I think I run across a lot of folks that maybe the wife is very big into real estate and investing and the husband is more risk adverse and there is a money story behind it. How do you encourage them to have conversations? Do you encourage them to have like weekly cadences? Like what does that all look like? Yeah. So one of the things, of course, I do with my clients is I give them my book and make them read it together because... (laughs) In the book, there's calls to action at the end of each chapter. And so it's an opportunity for spouses to sit there and go, oh, what did you learn as a kid? And do you like to spend? Do you like to save? So it's a, I try to find a neutral space for them to come together. I definitely think people should get together at least once a week, but at a minimum once a month, they should be getting together and going through the numbers saying, hey, we did pretty good this month or next month's going to be a little bit tighter because we've got vacation coming up and we didn't put money aside yet, but you got to have those conversations. And so many people don't actually have money meetings. They don't meet on Sunday nights or Tuesday mornings or whenever, but you got to find a time that works for both people. Sometimes it's good to include the kids if there's kids, right? They may not get to hear all the parts of the conversation that might be stressful, but start including the kids as participants in the family money management. And make an agreement that if it starts to get heated, that somebody can hit a pause button and take a five minute break, go cool off, then come back because we can so quickly go to emotions that the logic, the black and white of two plus two is four is completely lost. Yep. Yep. And I know we were talking before the show, which this is a perfect transition about you are in the process of writing children's books about teaching them about finance. The question I have is, how do you bring your children involved in that or into that conversation? Is there a certain age where you see that? Is there different ways you can teach them? What does that look like? I think the minute that they can start saying, gimme, is a good time to say, hey, I'll give you, but let's put some into savings. I know a lot of people that'll, if the kid gets $10, $5 goes into savings. And then the other $5, now I know one couple, the $5 that they get, 20% goes to mommy for all the work she puts into that family. And then they get 30%. So they get 30 out of a hundred of that dollar, the $10, but getting them to immediately start thinking about that. All the money is not mine for the moment. Like, let me put it aside for the future. It is mine, but let's be smart about it. Delayed gratification. The more we can teach kids that the better, but I think it starts to be with I was in a toy store and I tell the story a few times, but I was in a toy store. It was February. A kid had asked for a toy and the mom said, that's it. I'm telling Santa Claus, you are off the list. Now it's February. He's got 10 months to Christmas. He's begging and pleading and just please don't tell Santa. 
traumatizing the heck out of the kid. She could have just said, Timmy, we don't have the money in the budget right now, but that's something we can plan for later. Or we could take it out of your savings account or I'll match it. I'll pay 50% if you pay 50%. There were all kinds of opportunities to have a healthier conversation rather than shame him or take him out by the blackmail of, I'm going to tell Santa Claus. You know, a five, six-year-old kid, they can't process that. Yep. Yep. Or really think 10 months in advance. So I like the idea of you pay half and I'll pay half figuring it out. Do you encourage kids to do chores to make money or how should they be making money? I definitely think chores is a very important piece of the financial literacy. I mean, there've been studies and maybe it's changed since everybody's, you know, a computer baby, but there have been studies that have shown getting paid an allowance, doing chores really helps people to start to be aware of financial responsibility, the rewards of working hard. And I think it's an important component of starting to get kids familiar with money. Yeah. And I'm going deep on this because as we started the conversation, your money beliefs when you are a child ultimately transform you into who you are as an adult. And a lot of the things that you do is try to break people from their money beliefs or teach them how to process their money beliefs. So when you're thinking about having kids and how do you teach them about money, it comes full circle. And that's why I'm trying to dig out of this. Yeah. And here's the thing. And again, I'll just clearly say I don't blame my parents because they didn't know what they were doing. So there's no blame here. But I've had other people tell me the same thing. I would save money. My parents struggled. They would borrow my money. So when I'm 12 years old and my money disappears, I'm thinking, what's the point of saving? Somebody's going to come in and take it. And I know other people who told me, yeah, my dad would come in and say, look, I need to borrow a hundred bucks out of your savings. I'm 10 years old. And I'm like, no, you can't. And dad's like, ha ha ha, I'm taking it. I'm your dad. So those kinds of experiences Kids pick that up. They remember that stuff. And you go, oh, it was no big deal. But when you're a kid, like for me, a hundred bucks, man, like that was pretty exciting. So to just watch somebody else come in and go, well, thank you for saving that. That's really going to help me out. That had to seemingly no value or appreciation for that hundred dollars was harsh for me. Yep. Yep. Agreed. One of the things we were talking about before too, is that you have climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa. And I have as well. I did it when I was 2012. And it really reshaped how I thought about America when I came back. And I'm interested to hear, how was that experience in terms of a financial lens and your perspective on money? Well, going to Africa was a big mind shift for me, very much against my will. When I got to Africa, I was amazed at how happy people were, how grateful people were, how little they had. Tanzania, the average income was $100 per person a year for income. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's like half a day on Monday. And I couldn't get over the fact. I'm like, what's wrong with these people? They're so happy. They don't have material things. What's wrong with them? Don't you get it? And it really, like, I would throw away a piece of trash and they would ask if they could have it because it was a container. It was something they could reuse. Mm -hmm. And I had to look at them. And initially I kept going, what's wrong with them? What's wrong with them? And then I had to stop and go, wait a minute, you're running around like crazy trying to be happier, trying to accumulate all this stuff. These people don't have any of that stuff and they're incredibly happy. Maybe you need to rethink some stuff. And don't get me wrong, I still like driving a nice car and I like having a nice meal. I'm grateful if I have hot water and electricity and just the basic clean air kinds of things. So it really taught me gratitude. 
Yeah, I remember going and we were on a dirt road headed to the hotel. And when I say there are no streetlights, I mean, it was dark. It's the darkest I think I've ever seen anything in my life. And I remember we were coming closer to the hotel and there was this car off the side of the road who had, I guess, like lost control or whatever. And I was telling the story when I came back to America and the person was very insightful who I was telling the story to, he said, remember how the little things matter. Even if it's something like a little guardrail can keep you on the road and street lights and the roads paved, you know what side of the road to drive on. And it really made me appreciate everything that we have in this country that others, parts of the world, that would be a luxury. Yeah, no, absolutely. That reminds me, I was in India and I saw this woman on the side of the road because unfortunately, the women do most of the labor (laughs) in India. And this poor woman was pulling this cart and she had some tubing on it. And I said, what do you think's going on there? He said, well, she's probably walking into town, which is a four hour walk Mm -hmm. to go to the Home Depot and get tubing. And I was thinking, if you get the wrong tubing, that's four hours. Like I'm lucky I can get my car and in 50 minutes, I'm at a hardware store. But if I'm walking and pulling a cart, man, I got to manage my day a whole lot more than somebody like me who can just do anything in an instant. Yeah, measure twice, cut once. Yeah, yeah. So kind of transitioning back to the conversation about money and couples. So if you've got couples that come into you and you've got them understanding their money beliefs and their emotions, I know you talk about like baby steps to help them continue down their financial path. What are the easy low-hanging fruits that people should be doing when they're investing their money and thinking about? Well, I think one of the first things people have to do is get on the same page, agree that we're going to put aside 10% or 15% and that we want to invest so that we're not constantly fighting and rehashing out the same conversation. So I think it's important to get on the same page. I think at a minimum, people need to be putting aside 10, 15%. I think people need to be looking at, do we have three months or six months worth of money to cover just the necessities? If you don't have six, fine, do three. If you don't have three, do one. The reason I talk about baby steps is because a lot of times we want to get from A to Z. And the reality is you just can't get from A to Z. It's too big of a leap. But if you just focus on getting to B, great. I'll get a half a month's worth of income saved up to cover expenses. Oh, great. Now I'll get to a month. Like it doesn't have to be like most of us didn't get in debt in five minutes. It took us a while. It's going to take us a little time to get out of it. But if you stay focused and you commit to making these little adjustments and little adjustments. I mean, I have seen people on making $60,000, $70,000 turn around and pay off $50,000, $60,000 worth of debt in a couple of years because they were so laser focused. They're not out eating dinner every night. They're not going to the movies on the weekends. They're using Hulu or whatever. Like they're finding ways to not spend money, still live their lives and just super laser focused on getting rid of that debt. And so I think you have to really pick those goals and they have to be shared goals. But I think saving is the first place and then agreeing, paying off debt. And probably, I think the biggest thing is come up with an agreement on how you spend money. Anything over $500 requires a group decision or whatever that number is, or each of them have their own, I can do what I want account that they don't have to justify. But find ways that help you both win and work together through automated savings, automated investing, things like that, where you can put money into Acorn or put money into Vaulted and you're buying gold and you're buying like all these little things. I initially set up six different savings accounts and had 50 bucks and 25 every week coming out of all these different accounts. And I was so busy, money coming in, that's fine. I didn't notice it. 
But if I was waiting to write a check for 2000 bucks, I would have been like, no, no, not yet, not yet, not yet. Oh, 25 here, 50 there, 20. Oh, well, that equal 2000, but I didn't feel it. Yeah. I had to trick I think, myself. <laughs> I think it's about getting going and then getting good. I think so often in life, and myself included, I struggle with this a lot, seeing the end goal and thinking, okay, that's just too far away. So yeah. having those small goals, Atomic Habits written by James Clear is a phenomenal book. And one of the concepts he talks about is the accumulation of marginal gains. Like yeah. if you can just get 1% better every day. So one of the things I like to talk about is have an end state, be very clear on that, and then do one five-minute task every single day that marches you towards that. And then yeah. for this conversation, it could be something as little as move a dollar from your checking account to your savings account. Because if you start doing that repeatedly, now money is at the top of your mind. You are making a small step forward. It's not going to get you there in the time that you want it to, but it is a step in the right direction and that will build on top of each other. Yeah. And just like for me, I have to obsess about something. So when I finally said, you know what, I've got some bad financial habits. I'm going to change this. I went out and bought like 30 books. Now, did I read all 30 books? No, but I had them stacked on both sides of my nightstand. It was in my face. I had post-it notes. Look at your money. Like I had to like, okay, all right. I've given myself enough notice. Let's deal with some of this stuff. But you have to want it. And I think you do have to obsess about it, whether you want to lose weight, whether you want to invest, whether you want to get rid of debt. Sorry to all the dog lovers. I'm a dog lover. But sometimes you have these like crazy people that go out and save animals and God bless them. We need them because they're so like, you know, this lady would like not let me have the cat like until she checked my house and my credit and everything. And I'm like, oh, I'm just trying to take a cat in. She's like, no, but we need those people. They're fanatical and they're the ones out there doing the work. And you have to be fanatical doing the work for your own stuff. Yep. Yep. Well, we are a real estate show and you teased me with a little bit of a real estate story in your history that I would love to discuss now. And I don't know how to ask it other than, can you tell us your real estate journey and kind of some of the things you've done in real estate? Yeah. So I'll tell you one of my nightmare stories. Here's the thing. I think real estate is great. I love real estate. It's tangible. If everything else goes south, I can go sit on my property and pitch a tent. <laughs> like It's real. And everybody's different. But for me, I was like, oh, I'm going to have a real estate empire. I'm going to just like take over the entire world. Except I'm probably too nice to be managing it. You can own property. You don't have to manage it. But I went in on this apartment with a client of mine in an area that was going to be up and coming, but it up and went. It never went anywhere. It was a horrible neighborhood. A prospective tenant came by. And just as they came by, there was a shooting in the street. So they were like, yeah, I think I'm going to... We're like, no, no, no. There's only one shooting a month. Come back. We'll give you a post-shoot discount. So bad neighborhood. One of the units was empty. And as luck would have it, just finished getting the whole thing finished, appliances in, repainted. This uh, guy in a gang had just gotten out of prison and needed a new place to have an office. And he happened to live on the same street. And he saw that vacant apartment. He thought, well, that'll be really nice. And so he broke in and started using that as his meeting place. And the police would come by and then he'd run away. And then now, luckily, because he had just gotten out of prison and the police could look and see, they were like, uh, yeah, this guy's in trouble. But it took a little bit of time. And so they keep destroying the appliances. Then I'm like, I'm going to repaint it, all this stuff. And people are good people. They're not going to touch. Nope. Breaks in again. Graffiti's the whole wall. So then I'm like, all right, I'm starting to like go dark. And I decide I'm going to get like, you can rent attack dogs. And I'm like, I'm going to get like three attack dogs, have them put them there early in the morning. And those dogs are just going to take care of things. 
Of course, now I'm thinking, well, if they get eaten alive, all the better. And then I'm like, what are you doing? You're plotting potential murder just so you can rent out your apartments. You probably need to sell this unit and get out of the neighborhood. So it just got so crazy because I was so frustrated. And I think that's what happens. Like at the time I was doing that, I wasn't rolling in dough. So when I'm putting in $5,000, like that's hard spent money. A tenant called me on another property and they're like, the, the Roto-Rooter people came out or whoever it was, not Roto-Rooter, but somebody came out and they told it it's $20,000 to fix the plumbing error and there's toilet waste going under the house and I've got to go stay in a hotel. I paid a guy the next day to go out for 250 bucks. He's like, there's nothing there. And it was this little thing. And I had, I'm not a plumber, but I knew a couple of people that could double check the work of the first person. Cause I'm not one that's just going to write a check for $20,000. But I think that for me is when I was first doing it. I think for a lot of people, when you're putting in your hard earned money into something that's going to pay back, it's just, it's heart wrenching when people just take and graffiti it or kick in a wall or scratch the refrigerator, but it felt like a personal assault. So working with your clients, where have you seen real estate really work for them? And where have you seen it not work for them? Are there any commonalities there? Well, I think real estate can work for everybody if you can get everything to align. I think where it works is where people are really good about boundaries if they're managing it themselves, collecting the rent. It's so important to make sure you screen your tenants. I think having a bad tenant is just going to take the you worst. on a path to horror. I always tell people, if you're not sure, if you have any doubt about a tenant, just say no. Like, don't prove yourself right. Like, I don't like to prove myself right anymore. I have a bad feeling. You're gone. You're gone. I'm not even going to find out. I think with real estate, even some of my clients that make over the 150 AGI, which is a lot of my clients, they're not going to get any deductions against that income if it's at a loss but they are going to get those passive loss carry forwards. There are going to be a lot of great tax advantages. So even if you're not income wise on paper making profit, you're still going to be able to parlay those losses into offsetting capital gains and things later on. So it's just knowing, like I've had people go out and buy property and they're like, I can't wait to get this write-off. And I'm like, well, you're already paying zero taxes. So getting a bigger write-off means you're still going to pay zero taxes not zero taxes plus a hundred. And they're like, what do you mean? Well, everybody's situation is different. So you got to make sure what's going to be the impact on the taxes, whether you're writing off a mortgage, whether you have a triplex. A lot of my clients, I try to get them into a duplex or a triplex to start off. I have a lot of people in entertainment. And that way, if their gig goes south, they don't get renewed for a season. They've got two other people or another person paying their mortgage. Yep. Yep. Let's uh, talk about the AGI just for a second, because the first property I ever bought, I thought the exact same thing. I'm going to not pay taxes for the rest of my life. This is the greatest thing ever. And then my mm-hmm. accountant came to me and said, actually, you make more than $150,000 a year, which means that you can't deduct down <laughs> past zero. Right. So whatever your rental income is, you can only take it down to zero and you carry forward depreciation. You don't get to write off passive losses onto active income. Yeah. Painful lesson for a lot of people. Yeah. Anything I missed there, just because I want to make sure we can. No, no, I think it's so important. Unless you're a real estate professional, unless you can show that you put in a certain number of hours and there's a bunch of criteria. And so we do have certain clients that meet that criteria and then they can write off 100%. But for the most part, I have that happen. So many clients are like, where's my big write-off? I'm like, well, here's the good news and the bad news. Yeah, You're making more than 150,000. Bad news is you're limited. Yeah. 
Yeah, but you do get to carry those forward. So if you That's have right. a appreciation, a capital gain in the future, or you need some passive losses, you get to carry those forward. Yeah, and absolutely. And that's one of the places where, okay, I will say this because you can, you don't have all the receipts, but you're picking that stuff up. By the time you get to write that stuff off 10 years later, IRS is not coming back and asking you for the receipts on the capital loss carry forward. Take that for however you want to interpret that. (laughs) We are just two people talking on the internet. Don't sue us. So... (laughs) Well, fantastic conversation. I want to shift this now into our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what's a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Well, my favorite book is The Power of Focus. It's been out for a while, Jack Canfield, but it's a great book on how to get things done, how to get organized and how to just like create those habits because really successful life is just creating lots and lots of healthy habits that keep us on track doesn't mean that you can't still have fun and you can't still be spontaneous, but Power Focus for me was a game changer. And I love giving that book out. I think the book that I just read, Outliers, even though I know it's been out. Yeah, it's been out for a little bit, but I found that very fascinating. So much so that I kept bringing it up in my podcast. People were like, could you stop mentioning the book? I'm like, okay, sorry. I just really liked the book. (laughs) Yeah, I will always read anything Malcolm Gladwell writes just because I believe he's so good and digging in and Outliers is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do every single day. What are some of the habits that you do every day? So one of the habits I do is I walk an hour every day and I purposely have two big dogs that force me to get up and make me walk. And that's a great time for me to just clear my mind. I don't look at my phone. I don't even listen to music. I'm just walking. Stuff comes up. The other habit that I do that I find to be really, really helpful is I map out my day the night before. And so I remind myself, oh, you need to get up at, well, I get up at 5.30 anyway. Most mornings I get up at 5.30, walk the dogs. And then I've got until like eight in the morning to work out, meditate, all those fun things. And then eight o'clock starts to get crazy. But if I at least remind myself, oh, you've got a podcast at nine in the morning. Oh, you've got to be at the dentist. Whatever those things are, I map that out to remind myself, oh, okay, get up a little bit earlier. Or if it's something special and I'm like, I haven't had a lot of sleep, I'm going to lay out my clothes. Like I'm going to, so that when I wake up going, oh my God, I got to find coffee. Oh, there's my clothes. Here's my list. So I try to just prepare myself to just wake up like a fireman and be ready to go. I love it. I love it. Our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Well, for me, the best piece of advice I ever received was from my Boy Scout leader, So I got a scholarship and the opportunity to go to this college, Rhodes College, and I was actually going to stay and go to the local college, help my mom out. My parents had gone through a divorce and my Boy Scout leader came to me and he said, hey, I heard you got this opportunity to go to Rhodes College and but I heard you're going to stay. And I said, yeah, I'm thinking I should probably stay and help my mom. And he said, look, if you stay, I will get you a job managing one of my burger joints or doing whatever you want to do. But my advice to you is get the hell out of town. Don't look back. Take that opportunity and run with it because not everybody gets those kind of opportunities. And he used a couple of cuss words and I kept going, my Boy Scout leader just cussed at me. But look, I love the University of Tennessee. That's where I wanted to go. I have orange boxers and orange, you know, and I see Smokey in the back. But I was going to go to Austin P. But ultimately going to Rhodes College really significantly changed my life. I got to meet a lot of people I never would have met. 
And I got to see the world from a perspective that I'd never seen. And I am so thankful that that Boy Scout leader told me to just run and don't look back. Because everything is kept on the internet forever. I'm just going to publicly state, I believe that's one of the most impactful things that a young person could do is move away from home. And I believe that we should have a service year in America where you do one year of service to your country, whether it's military or working at the post office or writing code for the whatever application, but it has to be in a time zone away from where you live. And I think that brings people together under community, but also gets them to see a different part of the country that they're not going to get to experience. And that'll help us all come together a little bit better. So I love that. Run away and don't look back. Yeah, absolutely. Our fourth one is, what's the thing you're most proud of in your life? I think the thing I'm most proud of is, well, two things. One, I was really proud getting my name on the comedy store building as a paid regular. That was like most people are like, what? But that's a big deal in the entertainment world. But the other thing I'm really proud of is I built my CPA practice from a one-person accounting firm to 14 employees. And we do international. We do like, I'm not just working out of my bedroom in my underwear. I actually have an office with a full staff. And that feels like a really big accomplishment to look back and say, wow, I've actually turned this into a profitable business that actually serves people. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, our last one is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? I would love to sit down with Martin Luther King. Why? Why? Because I think he was really insightful. And and even though I know some of his beliefs and stuff came from Gandhi and all these other things, I would love to be able to pick his brain and see how he was able to at least appear to stay grounded in a very volatile time period where there was a lot of hate and a lot of crazy and still said, I'm going to move forward in a nonviolent way. Like, I just think it's just so big picture and beyond most of us to have that capacity to forgive. And we'd probably be a lot happier and healthier if we all could learn to forgive and move forward. And so he's a person that inspires me. And I would just love to be able to get the inside scoop a little bit more. Yeah, there's a handful of people I name when I get asked that question in return, and he's one of them. I think his ability to stay dedicated to the mission, but be flexible in his tactics was is very, very underrated in history. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Bob, fantastic conversation. Appreciate having you on. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you and get connected or learn more about you and everything you've got going on at The Money Nerve, where's the best place we could point them? So the website is themoneynerve.com. That's nerve, not nerd. I'm a nerd but it's The Money Nerve. That's got my podcast. That's got my online course. It's got the book. It's got free resources. It's got information about my accounting firm. And yeah, check it out. Feel free to reach out. Info at themoneynerve.com. We love interacting with folks and hopefully helping people get on a healthier relationship with their money. Love it. Well, we'll link all those in the show notes and then got to come see you out in LA. Sounds good. Come on out. We'll take you to the comedy store. Mm, Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.